We are excited about this series and I would just encourage you to lean in. And I will say this, if you're new to Northview, you should know uh, over the last two to three months, I have spoken five times wearing a suit coat. I've worn a suit coat five times over the last few months. Uh, I know that's important to some of you and I, I tend to like to go that route at times. But you should know that at least once a year, I will figure out a way to justify a hoodie and some Jordans. And so I am thrilled that you are here. I don't dress like this every week, but for the next few, you should just rock some J's, some Nikes, and a hoodie and show up comfortable. It's gonna be great, amen? I love this statement, nothing but net. This was a cultural statement. Many of us grew up saying this on playgrounds and hearing it on television, watching commercials with Larry Bird and Michael Jordan enforcing this idea, nothing but net. But for me, those words, uh, they carry an even more significant weight. Those words for me mark one of my favorite moments ever in my entire life. Now, sometimes when I get up here to preach, the struggle is I talk to you in this room differently than I would talk to you in my living room. There's a difference. Sometimes you get up here and it's like, hey, look at this PowerPoint. And you know, you're kind of a little bit more dialed in and the conversation is one way. But sometimes I wish these conversations could feel like we're sitting in my living room that you and I were just sitting down for a conversation, telling stories and talking about the Bible. And you should know if, if we ever get the opportunity to hang out, I'm, I'm a pretty simple person. Um, I love telling stories and I will almost every time, it does not matter who you are or where we are. If we speak for over seven minutes, I will talk to you about the Bible. That's just, this is how I'm wired. It comes out in my life. But if we're sitting in our living room, the conversation would feel more like this. Now you should know, I am uh, having a hard time with this message, getting it into the time window that the team has given me. Uh, I'm gonna do my best, but the challenge there is, I only get to speak to you once a week. And then I have to really try to combat all the lies and the things that are bombarding your heart and your mind and the things that are trying to rob you of your joy and lies that are trying to fill your mind. And, and then I get this 40 minute window to say, hey, try to, combat all of that. And sometimes I just feel like there's more in my heart that I'm like, oh, I just wanna, I just wanna spend more time with you. I am going to start out today's message with a story and some of you are gonna think, my goodness, this is a long story. Um, but life takes time. And I maybe think you'll find something in it as we get through it. Sometimes people will ask me, they'll say, hey, where, where are you from? Like, where did you grow up? And I always have a hard time answering that question. I, I never know where to start or what to say. I uh, grew up as a minister's kid, uh, which was a lot like being a military kid in our context. Uh, my dad and mom were always drawn to very inner city ministries. And we moved around a lot. And by the time I was completing grade school, by the time I was completing grade school, I had lived in Minneapolis, Minnesota, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Chicago, Illinois, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, Grand Junction, Colorado, Watertown, South Dakota, and Merrill, Wisconsin. We, we moved a lot. And majority of it was spent in a very urban context. And for me, I 
found that a lot of these transitions, they came with anxiety. They came with stress. If you've ever had to transition kids, uh, you, you know what that's like for a child. For me, I was, I was really anxious for two reasons primarily. One, uh, I, I struggled with this pretty significant speech impediment. And so socially, you're always really self-aware of that. You're, you're self-conscious and insecure and embarrassed. And so much of meeting new people and relationships is predicated on having a conversation, which I wasn't confident in. So there was that. And then added to that was the fact that in most of the spaces I grew up in, I was the only white kid. I grew up in predominantly black communities. And, and I will say, I, I, was, I was very blessed, um, whether it was in Milwaukee or Minneapolis or whether it was in uh, Chicago or Oklahoma City. Um, it didn't matter the state of the city. I, I was very blessed to always be welcomed in with open arms to the black community. Uh, something I will forever cherish. It, it really was something that I'm, I'm very thankful for. On the other side of that extreme came these spurts where mom and dad took assignments out in the middle of nowhere in, in country towns. And this came with a polarizing experience where uh, you go from being in the city where you're taught to be tough and to fight to being now raised in the country where you're taught to be disciplined and to work hard. And for me, those polarizing extremes were really beneficial. I'm, I'm really thankful that I, I had that exposure. Nonetheless, during all of that, my safe haven was the game of basketball. I, I found so much peace and clarity and just personal confidence in that space. Whether it was shooting in an adjacent parking lot from our apartment complex in the city or whether it was shooting on the back of a barn in the middle of the country, uh, this game uh, has had a lot of impact on my life. And it has facilitated some of the greatest memories I've ever had with two of the most important relationships I have. And that is with my father and with my brother. I would say that I, in many ways, feel like I'm dedicating this series uh, to my two best friends. And I can remember uh, days that I would be stressed and days that I would be confused or frustrated with life and just sitting there shooting and the affirmation of that sound, nothing but net, is, is such an affirming thing. And basketball was so much a part of my, my life. My, my dad was just so fascinating. He was so committed to our development and he was so committed to his role as lead cheerleader and celebrating my brother and I. And he would do this thing that he was always instigating. He, he would always create a game and he would always challenge people wherever we were at. And if there wasn't anybody, he would pit Rick, Rick and I against each other. You're gonna play one-on-one. So we'd be at parks and dad would be like, hey, you can't beat my kid. I bet you a meal right now, you can't beat my boy. And, and then he would sit on the sideline and he would troll him the whole time. Like, my son is giving you the business. And there comes this day, there was this guy who always hung out at this park uh, near our apartment. And he, he was this really loud, gregarious guy. Uh, we never knew if he was intoxicated, it was, it was the homeless gentleman, but he, he was always around. And at the time, I'm maybe 12 years old. And my dad says to this gentleman, hey, I will buy you lunch if you play my son in a game of one-on-one -on -one to 50. 
And he said, in fact, if you beat my son, I'll also give you $20. And so we play this game of one-on-one. My dad sits there on a five-gallon bucket and commentates the whole game. He it's just the three of us, but he's just, he's enriched in it. And, and he would give live commentary. He would give nicknames to everybody. I had some of the wildest nicknames. At one point he was calling me the Thrilla in Vanilla. Uh, <laughs> another time he would call me the Blazing Caucasian. Like <laughs> he, was, he was always gassing me up. And I remember I get done with this game with this guy, this guy beat me. Grown man, let's point that out, but he beat me. (laughs) And my dad was like, all right, son, we lost. A deal's a deal, we shook on it. So so we take this guy to lunch and seated across the table, uh, my dad shares Jesus with him. It was amazing. So that is... There's this basketball, there's this parenting, there's this discipleship, there's my dad developing me. It's, it's all happening and it's all centering around this kind of game. So my, my freshman year, I'm heading into my sophomore season. It's the summer of between my freshman and sophomore year. My dad meets this guy, they become friends and the guy finds out our family has never been on an airplane. I don't know what it was like for you. Wave at me if you were a teenager, young adult, the first time you were on an airplane. Anyone else wave at me? Yeah, that's amazing. I sometimes look at how my kids are growing up and that my children flew more times before they were one than I did before I was 20. And that's, it's hard for me to reconcile that in my mind. It's just such a different upbringing. Uh, and so this guy says, hey, if you could go anywhere, where would you wanna go? And our family dream was always to go to New York City. That that was our dream. And so my dad tells him that. And this guy blesses our family with a trip to New York City. It was incredible. We we showed up to the airport like three hours in advance. We didn't know what we were doing. We didn't know how early we needed to be there. You ever seen someone in the space and you're like, first timer. (laughs) Like you're sitting next to someone at your campus or in your row and you're like, they have no idea what's going on. First timer. which side note, uh, Chris and I were recently at an airport and we to- totally seen a future version of ourselves. There was this couple coming down the aisle and the guy was in a wheelchair and he was kind of directing where he wanted to go and pushing the wheelchair was his wife and she just looked angry. <laughs> and I was like, babe, I think that's us. I'm going to be the first to go physically. You're gonna be the first to go mentally, uh, <laughs> but it's gonna work out. So we get to this airport, we get on the plane, we land in New York, and my parents uh, rented a car. Now, if you ever go to New York City, you never rent a car. We didn't have this information. No one cued us in on this. It is a billion times easier if you just get a subway pass. Well, we rented a car, and at the time, my dad's dream vehicle was a gold Dodge Intrepid. Now, some of you may have higher standards than the Johnsons, but for us... That was a big deal. And just because God is awesome, we go out to get the car at the rental car place and we get a a gold Dodge Intrepid. My dad was driving around Manhattan like he was the boss. He, He just was in his element. 
We got this hotel in New Jersey, the embassy suites, and every single day we'd head into the city. And, and we did all the things. Uh, we went to the Statue of Liberty. We seen a Broadway play. We went to Times Square. We even lost our car. Uh, we didn't know where we parked it. True story, my dad filed a police report with an officer on a horse. Oh, is that not just so rich? That's amazing. And um, so we did all these things, but the number one reason why we went to New York, the thing that we did every single day is we played basketball. The whole reason we wanted to go out there is New York is known for iconic playground courts, infamous courts that have housed some of the greatest basketball talent ever. Wilt Chamberlain, Bill Russell, Lou Alcindor, who would become Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and throughout the ages, Kevin Garnett, Kobe Bryant, Kevin Durant, Allen Iverson, Stephon Marbury, you name it. They've come through these, these playgrounds. So we go out there and we're just playing at all these courts. We go to West 4th Street, we go to the cage, and the whole time, my dad is just staying true to form. He's on the sideline instigating and celebrating. And it leads up to the day that we are going to the iconic, the hallmark, the gold standard playground in all of New York City, Rucker Park, and it's in Harlem. At the time, there was what was called the Entertainer's Classic. It was a tournament put on by hip hop record labels. So at the time, the top four teams were Murder, Inc., you know, led by a guy by the name of Irv Gotti, Terror Squad, led by a guy by the name of Fat Joe. Then there was Bad Boy Records, led by a guy by the name of Puff Daddy, who became P. Diddy, who I think now is just Diddy. <laughs> and then there was Rockefeller Records, led by a guy by the name of Jay-Z. And so we find out Bad Boy Records is playing Rockefeller Records in Rucker Park. And so the game starts at seven. Well, my mom and my sister, they wanted to do shopping. They wanted to go shopping. So they take us to Harlem and they drop us off at like one o'clock. They're like, you can just play in the park, hang out until the game starts, which we were excited about. But know this, uh, we are making our way around New York City through all the boroughs with no cell phone and an atlas. Come on, remember the atlas? This was so stressful. You're trying to read city blocks off this map. It was like playing Oregon Trail in real life. <laughs> like, what are we doing? And so they drop us off. We go into Rucker Park. Rucker Park is, I mean, it's walled off with 30-foot fences, surrounded by high-rises in the center of Harlem. We go in there and we start playing. And eventually people start showing up to set up the game. And around the time, there was a shoe brand called And One. And One had started making these mixtapes highlighting streetball players and kind of New York City basketball. And showing up is the lead commentator and the voice of the And One mixtapes, a guy by the name of Hannibal. And they're setting up the game and they're getting ready. And my dad just, being who he is, just strikes up a conversation with Hannibal. And he's just having a good time interacting with this guy. Well, what these teams would do is to gain leverage, they would never tell who was on their roster. They would never say who was playing also that they could have the upper hand when the game came around. Well, as we're playing, word starts to spread, Kobe Bryant 
is showing up at the Rucker Park. And there's this buzz in Harlem, like everybody wants to see Kobe play. Before we know it, there's this line of people and they're wrapping around Rucker Park and we're inside it and they're doing everything they can to get inside. Before you know it, the place is packed and they're warming up for the game. And the crowd on the outside kept pushing to get in and they break through the barricade and they come billowing onto the court in which a fight breaks out in the park. Complete brawl in the middle of the court and we're all trapped in this like caged, fenced in court. And so people are climbing over the fences trying to get out of this court. It was, uh, it was terrifying. And so they, they cancel the game. Well, mom and Heidi are not picking us up for another three hours <laughs> and the game is over and it's dark out. So people leave and they're tearing stuff down. Well, this Hannibal guy, the lead commentator of and one mixtapes comes up to my dad and he's like, hey, where's your guys' ride? To which we didn't know. And he was like, look, it is not safe for the three of you to be hanging out in Harlem uh, this time of night. You should come with me. So he takes us to this barbershop and we go to this Harlem barbershop where for the next three hours, we got to sit and listen to local historians talk about seeing Bill Russell, Wilt Chamberlain, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and the rest of the list and the moments that they experienced. And guys, I, I will forever cherish that moment. I'm so glad we missed the game. It was a basketball conversation I've never been a part of since. So we leave, my mom and sister find us and uh, we get home to the hotel. We get to the room, we scan our card, the card's not working. And we go downstairs, was it too close to the wallet? What's going on here? And they say, well, there, there's actually a convention. We put you in the wrong room. You're on a floor with a convention. It's gonna be complete chaos. We thought we would move you to another room. We went ahead and moved your stuff for you. To which my dad was triggered. He's a very private person. Anyone else you're raised by that dad? You moved our stuff. Like this joker hides money everywhere. He would make us kids, put it in our sock. He'd wear secret fanny packs. Like he just, he just has a unique approach to life. And so... The lady tells us, she says, I know it's a huge inconvenience, but the person who was staying in the presidential suite uh, decided to check out early. So we moved your family to the presidential suite. Come to find out there was this ball player by the name of Steve Francis. He played for Maryland and then had a good career with the Houston Rockets. And he was in town for a workout and decided to call his trip short. And so we go up to this presidential suite and we open the door. Now at the time, our family of five is living in a two bedroom apartment. My brother and I shared a bedroom. My sister slept on the pullout couch in the living room, which was fine for us. We never, never once felt we were going without. But we opened this door to a hotel room that was twice the size of our house and an NBA player stayed in it the night before. This is a big moment for us. We wake up the next day and you can tell dad is excited. Dad is, he's, he's in his element. He makes us do push-ups in the lobby uh, <laughs> while we're eating our continental breakfast. The day before we were playing at this one park and little did we know, come to find out, college scouts, they hang out around these parks trying to scout talent. 
some scout came up and introduced himself to my dad and my brother. He was from the University of Pittsburgh and he invited my brother, hey, you should come play in the showcase that we're having tomorrow uh, downtown. So we wake up and in the morning, we go to the showcase at a park in the middle of the city, in the middle of the day. And the place is packed. Some of the best talent I've ever seen on one court where all these players were gathered. They give my brother a jersey and it's a reversible jersey and it's the number 31, which Indiana had a pretty good ball player uh, who also wore the number 31 by the name of Reggie Miller. So Rick gets out there, he's 6'7", he can shoot from distance and my brother just is flat out hooping. He's tearing it up. And there's always, wherever you go down, there are commentators on PA systems commentating on the game and giving nicknames. And the nickname they gave my brother, you're gonna love this, is they started calling him White Reggie. Oh, <laughs> it's amazing. So the game's going, my dad is hyped. He's on the sideline, he's a very proud dad. And the commentator finally says, you know what, sir? You take it from here. <laughs> so my dad starts commentating this game. It, it, it's got to be one of his top five experiences in his life. It was a great moment. Comes down to the end and it's game point and my brother makes a move and he makes the game winning shot. And my dad <laughs> lost his mind. <laughs> he runs center court with the microphone and at the top of his lungs shouts, nothing but net. Oh, it was amazing. That's why I love those three words. I felt so blessed and so privileged to be there and, and get to see my brother have that experience. And I was so happy for him and, and I was also so happy for my dad who has been so invested into my brother and I and whether it was a vacant parking lot or whether it was a showcase in Manhattan, he was always true to form and that was a big moment for him. And I say all of that because it's a long story but if you overlay it with what we're gonna talk about today, something might come to mind. Now, where I wanna go in this conversation is we are gonna call it, obviously, Nothing But Net is the series. Anyone like whiteboards? You should know this. If we ever did hang out individually, um, I would actually have a whiteboard or a notepad. I love concepts and I like writing things down. Um, so if you came over and hung out at my house, I'd probably weird you out, but I would do this. And... Uh, we're gonna talk about Luke chapter five. That's where we're gonna go. Now, where I wanna first start is I wanna talk about what I am calling the Beethoven experience. We'll start there. Then I wanna talk about coming off defeat. From there, I wanna focus on stretching the defense. which you're thinking to yourself, it would have been so much easier to put this on a PowerPoint. <laughs> but I'm so sensory and writing it is so fun. Um, I then wanna talk about broken equipment. 
And lastly, crazy dad in the stands. Oops, can't spell, right? You guys ready for this? Anyone excited for this message? Anyone like it when a pastor asks you a question that you feel like you have to respond to? (laughs) Someone claps so he doesn't get insecure on us, right? Luke chapter five is fascinating to me because Jesus is about to start selecting his disciples. Jesus is such a renegade. He's a nonconformist. He does things that you wouldn't expect and he doesn't fit the mold that we often try to force him into. So Jesus came up in a society that was hyper-religious. Everything was built around the religion of the Jewish customs in the nation of Israel. In fact, the entire education system was built around this faith, this religion. So much so that they developed this very rigorous education system that most kids failed. Most kids were forced to drop out and told they weren't good enough. By the time a child was the age five or seven, try to get your mind around this, they would have to have the entire Torah, the initial books of the Bible, completely memorized by the age of five or seven. Now wave at me if you would have dropped out right there. Like you you would not have been able to memorize that much. Yeah, so most kids dropped out. And the standards only got higher over time. And the only outcome, the only end goal, if you were to graduate from this education system, the only end goal is you would become a rabbi or eventually a Pharisee who Jesus had some run-ins with. Jesus shows up in this context and Jesus becomes a rabbi. And now it's time for Jesus to select his disciples. Essentially what would happen is the the elite of the elite, the best of the best, the small few that graduated would become candidates. And the rabbis who were the heroes of the day would come along and say, I choose you, I believe, and this is what they would say, you are worthy to follow me. Jesus shows up and would just, fascinating disregard. He's like, no thanks. That's not what I'm after. That's not what I have in mind. I think God sometimes looks at a lot of religion like that, like, oh, no thanks. That's not what I have in mind. So he starts selecting his disciples and it's, it's a very unique group. And we find in Luke chapter five, him selecting Peter. Now, if you have your Bibles, look at this. It says, on one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God. Folks, there's always gonna be a demand for the word of God. Where churches go sideways and where we lose our ability to add value in the world is when we start to think we do it without the word of God. The demand is on the word of God, okay? It's not us and our antics and our talents and our personalities and our programs and our presentation. No, it's on the declaration of God's divinely inspired word, okay? That's what draws people in. He was standing by the lake of Genseray. Now, some will call it Gennesaret or Gennesaret, uh, but if you Google it, you'll find that the accurate pronunciation is Gensaray. I'm saying that for those of you who are quick to email. <laughs> and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and they were washing their nets, basically the final task that you would do in wrapping up the day. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him, to put out a little from land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. 
And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, now watch this statement. This is really important. It goes from the plural to the singular. Watch it. Master, we, plural, toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I, singular, will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish. Their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partner in the other boat to come help them. And they came and filled both the boats. So they began to sink. The nets are breaking. The boats are sinking. I mean, Jesus is wrecking their gear. You ever had someone break one of your things? And you're thinking to yourself, are you gonna replace that? Because that costs money. Jesus is wrecking their gear. But when Simon Peter saw it, now watch this. This is, this is really important for us as a community to understand. He fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. What you find is this is organic repentance. See, how we often try to get people to repent is by telling them how bad they are. Peter comes to repentance in discovering how good God is. That really the driving emotion to repentance, repentance is not feeling ashamed. It's feeling amazed. You see him in his splendor, like, oh, this God is amazing and I am unworthy and I surrendered all to him. That's, that's organic repentance, what you see right there. Verse nine, for he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of the fish that they had taken and also were James, John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to him, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. Now I preach out of the ESV version, but I do like how the NIV says it. It says, I will make you a fisher of men. It's a brilliant play on words. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. It's a fascinating portion. So let, let's talk about this idea of the Beethoven experience. Here's what I'm getting at when I, I say that. I recently had a conversation with a buddy who, he went downtown to the Speedway area and they did this thing where you can actually sit in the car and ride along with a race car driver driving at race speed on the track. And I was asking him about his experience and he says, you know, I've been skydiving and I did this. And I'm telling you, this was 10 times more terrifying than skydiving, which was amazing to me. I like going fast, but I would never skydive. There's so many more enjoyable things I would rather do. But <laughs> he says it was terrifying. He says the entire time my body was clenched. The whole time I was like in this cramp, I thought, he looked at me in the eyes. He was like so serious. Like you could tell this situation marked his life. And he was like, I thought I was going to die. He was so dramatic. He said, when we got done, we took some photos, we had some lunch. And he said, and a couple hours later, we got in the car to go home. And I got in the car and I put my hands on the wheel and my heart was still racing. You ever had a racing heart? You ever had an experience where it's like, man, my heart is just operating at a different gear right now. What he's saying is there's a big difference between watching the race in the stadium 
and watching the race from in the car. It's a different experience. You could also say that watching on television isn't the same as watching in the stadium, but nothing can compare to the experience and the racing heart that comes with being in the car yourself. Beethoven is agreed by many to be the greatest musician ever. I tend to have this eclectic group of influencers who I, I'm fascinated with in history that I give influence in my life. I, I read a lot about them and I'm fascinated by them. Individuals like Adler, uh, who was on the Mount Rushmore of philosophy with Socrates and Plato. I like Adler. Uh, I like Mark Twain. Uh, I like my favorite preachers, a guy by the name of Charles Spurgeon. Uh, and, and I like Beethoven. I, I like some of these guys. And they said Beethoven produced a sound that's the best sound ever produced in humanity. And throughout all of history, they say Beethoven, I, I mean, what he was able to accomplish was incredible. They, they said that when you would sit in an opera house and hear him play or hear him compose, that you would be brought to tears, that people would leave like with their breath taken away. And I say that because there's no doubt being in the, in the room there's an impact on your life. But my question is, can you imagine sitting on the bench next to him as he played? Oh, can you imagine that? Here's my question. Where's Peter at in this story? Jesus gets into his boat, tells him to push out from land. Jesus starts to teach. Where is Peter? Peter is seated. This is not a big boat right next to Jesus. Folks, get this. He is shoulder to shoulder with the author of life explaining life. What a moment. The essence of wisdom right there. The highest level of brilliance right there. Love and righteousness and holiness right there, there's no question Peter would have had a racing heart. And my desire for you is to pursue Christ to where you find yourself so close to him that you have experiences that leave you with a racing heart. That's the Beethoven experience. Let's talk about coming off defeat. Jesus tells him to push out, go deeper, cast his nets onto the other side. Peter lets him know, hey, we tried that. Um, and it didn't work. This is where he goes from plural to singular. He says, hey, we tried, but if, if you say so, I'll let the nets down. What he's saying is, we just came off a loss, but I'm willing to try again. And I find that a lot of Christians in this season, as I'm watching them kind of navigate their life of faith, I'm realizing a lot of Christians don't know how to come off defeat. Life comes with defeating moments. Life comes with loss. And sometimes we allow a loss to become a losing streak. And it's unnecessary. My, one of my favorite statistics in the game of basketball is the statistics points off of turnovers. This drives me crazy in a game. If you lose the ball, don't lose the next possession. If you give up the ball, don't, Turn around and give up a point. 
hustle back on defense. It drives me crazy when a player doesn't hustle back. Hey, you're gonna make mistakes, but don't give up the next possession. You have to hustle back. You have to do it because here's what happens. A bad possession becomes a bad sequence of plays that then becomes a bad quarter or half, that then becomes a bad game, then that becomes a loss. These things take momentum. And before you know it, that loss becomes a losing streak. And I, I get the feeling in my heart, some of you, you need to learn to come off defeat. Life comes with defeat. You're gonna make mistakes, but get up and try again. Get back on defense and don't give up points off of turnovers. You're making it too easy on the opposition because you're not hustling back. You have to learn to say, hey, next possession, next game. My coaches growing up always pointed out to us, hey, it's all right, we lost. We play again on Friday. It's just a game. Hey, we play again on Monday. Bring it on Monday. And sometimes you just have to say next game, next game, bring it on. You have to learn to come off defeat. I would then talk about stretching the defense. Now notice what Jesus is doing in the life of Peter. He first gets in Peter's boat. Peter doesn't say anything, which is a bold move. He hijacks this man's ride. I love that about Jesus. He just steals a boat. And he gets into his boat. Peter doesn't have any issue with that. He then tells Peter, hey, push out a little bit. I'm gonna teach here. Peter doesn't have any issue with that. And then he says, push out into the deep. And now Peter's uncomfortable. Wait a second. Here's where I'm starting to draw the line. What you find is Jesus is unrelenting in his desire to push Peter into a deeper space of greater development. And know that he seeks to do the same in your own life, to push you into greater depths of development. And my concern for many of you is you are going to spend your entire life with Christ in the shallow end. And here's the problem with the shallow end. If you've ever been to a pool, they're clearly marked. No diving. They have an X across the guy diving in head first. In other words, to say, the water here is too shallow. You can't dive in head first. And I think God desires to bring us into a depth of our understanding of who he is and his desires for our life where we can dive in head first. You have to get into deeper waters. And I love this idea, especially in terms of basketball, because I do believe uh, your ability to shoot from deep, your ability to shoot at a greater distance, it keeps the defense honest. You're harder to guard when you can shoot at a greater distance. Suddenly the defense has to adjust their scheme because there's now more space that they have to guard you in. Someone say amen if you're tracking with me. You tracking? Okay, like, so he, you have to stretch the defense. You have to be a threat out here to make the defense come to you. Because if you're only effective down here, you're an easy guard. It's easy for the defense to guard you because you're in the shallow end. And some of you, you're an easy guard. You are an easy guard for the enemy. 
Nothing about your life with faith stretches the defense and makes it harder for him to guard you. And sometimes you have to go into a deeper space with God. But here's the reason why we have a hard time going into deep spaces. It requires humility. It requires humility. And the challenge for all of us is our ego is buoyant. And that thing doesn't go underwater easily. So it's hard for us to accept something that might be over our heads. Scripture says that God gives us a peace that surpasses understanding. The only way you can experience this peace is to allow it to surpass your understanding. You see where humility is key? Our arrogance is we think we should have God figured out and then we spend our whole time in the kiddie pool. So you have to learn to stretch the defense. I, I then wanna talk about broken equipment. This to me is comical. This is where I don't think we pick up on the humor of scripture. If I'm Peter, I am stressing out. I mean, the nets start to rip. And I, if I'm him, I'm thinking, bro, I provide for my family with these nets. This is my livelihood. I just met you, you got in my boat and now you're ripping my nets. And then to make matters worse, sinking my boat. Jesus is wrecking his gear. And I love it because something really profound is happening in Peter's life. What Peter is discovering, don't miss this. Here's what he's discovering. He's discovering that his little world can't hold God. He's like, man, God showed up and the fabric of my world started to rip. The magnitude of this God was too much for the single vessel of my life. My world can't hold this God. And it's at that point that you discover, but maybe, just maybe, this God can hold my world. That is a game changer. That's where you find yourself with a peace that surpasses understanding. That's when you find yourself able to sleep at night. That's when you find yourself with momentum in your heart and a confidence for this life. It's because you know that this God holds your world. And Peter, he gets out of the boat and he leaves the biggest catch of his life on the beach. I mean, this was the biggest day in his career. Talk about financial security. And he leaves it all on the beach to follow Jesus. Now, some will say, well, Peter followed Jesus because of the miraculous catch, which I, I do think there's merit in that argument. But I don't think that's the driving force as to why Peter followed Jesus. I think Peter spent the day sitting in a boat hearing Jesus teach. And he arrived at a place where he thought, I've heard him teach. And if he has anything to say, 
about my life, I'm taking him at his word because I've heard him teach. Which is why I, I so badly, my agenda in life is to get people to fall in love with God's word. I, I, every week I'm like, God, help them see past my humanity, help them see past my faultiness, help me get out of the way so they can just stare in to this revelation because you get to the point in your life where you'll think, I've heard them teach. I've heard him teach. And if he has anything to say about my life, I'm taking him at his word. I'm guessing this came with a lot of objections though for Peter. I, just so you know, I, I'm clearly doing the family business, meaning I, I dropped out of school. I, I didn't have what it takes. I'm, I'm not worthy to be a disciple. And all I know is fishing. Nothing that you're calling me to is on my resume. I was recently having a conversation with someone on our team and terrific leader. In fact, this leader impacts every single one of you at all of our campuses every single week and you may not even know who they are, but they're a great asset to our team. And in this season, they got promoted and it comes with a new team and influence and responsibilities. And anytime you get promoted in life, it comes with a season of like over-evaluating and being self-critical. So this person is kind of adjusting to their new normal. I was having this conversation and they said, you know, pastor, I'm, I'm thankful for the opportunity and, and I'm, I'm thankful that uh, you guys are trusting me, but I just wanna bring awareness to the fact that I've never done anything like this. None of this is on my resume. To which I just had to ask the question. So how does something get on your resume? To which they responded. Well, I guess you just have to go and do it. And I said, yeah. I think you should just start adding things to your resume. What you find is in this moment, the nets are breaking and what is really happening is Peter is breaking out of a former version of himself. And I think a lot of people lived in prison by their resume. And you'll hear people say things like, well, it's not who I am. And God's like, it's not who you've been, but who's to say it's not who you can become? And too many people sacrifice their purpose on the altar of their personality because it's not on my resume. Well, folks, maybe you should start adding things to your resume. And maybe you should just go with that dream. And maybe you should step out in faith. And maybe you should take God at his word and say, all right. If you say so, I'm in. But I'm get, I get the feeling Peter probably lived every day overthinking this fisher of men concept. You know how us Christians do? We overthink some things and make it weird. Anyone else, you've been there? 
So, hey, scripture says we're supposed to be the light of the world, which means we for sure have to hang Christmas lights every year. It means we can't let our kids wear black, only bright colors because we have to shine. We're the light of the world. And, and I hear this stuff as a pastor. I'm guessing Peter the whole time's thinking, um, okay, fisher of men. Okay, when I would fish, I would, um, I would use a net. Okay, how, where's the net in all this? How, how do I catch him? What Peter doesn't realize is all along, he himself is becoming the net. And I'm guessing he, he had all these questions. People always wanted to know about his experience. Hey, what was that like? What was the miraculous catch like? How did it happen? What did you do? And I think he was probably honest and simple. Really, guys, I, I didn't do much. If anything, it was nothing but net. I've worked hard on that moment. You gotta do it. So I end with this. The other night, my daughter's teammates, her AAU teammates, were playing against each other in the county semifinals. This is a big deal. She had teammates on both sides. So we went to go watch and cheer them all on. This is a seventh grade girls basketball game. We show up and it looks like Black Friday. There are people lined outside this building. I'm like, to get into a seventh grade girls basketball game? We come in, it's standing room only. Both teams have like full cheerleading squads. The place was electric. And I thought to myself, oh God, I love Indiana. I'm home, I love this place. We get into the game, it's a great game. It comes down to the wire. And we're sitting next to the parents of our AAU team and they have girls on both sides of the team. And it was actually a really rewarding experience. I would advise every single one of you, if you have a kid who plays sports, you should find an opportunity to take your kid to a game and sit by parents watching their kid play. It's like parent appreciation at its highest. When they get to hear other parents address their kids from the stands, they start to really appreciate you. Like, wow, you're not that bad. So we're sitting by these parents and my buddy's right by me. I got Riley, I have Presley and there's a group of dads right here. And one of my buddies, he's just a world-class dad. He's a world-class husband. And his daughter is a great ball player, the type of player who works really hard and has a great attitude. Right now in this season, she's learning to shoot with confidence. She is a good shooter, but she hesitates and she doesn't step in to the shot with rhythm and with confidence and just let it fly. And this is something her dad and her are, are working a lot on. We've got to figure this out. So it comes down to the wire. They're losing by two points and the ball is swung and she steps in, in rhythm and she lets it fly. And it was nothing but net. And my buddy lost his mind with no regard for anyone else in the gym. 
no self-awareness. He stood to his feet, he upper punched the sky and he screamed at the top of his lungs. And it was amazing. And I was, I was kind of transported back to that day in New York where I got to see my brother have a moment and my dad have a moment and I felt so blessed to witness it. And here I'm once again, so happy for her and really proud of him as a dad. Hey, great job. It's a big moment. And it just made me think about Peter who would follow Jesus and Jesus would disciple him and Jesus would commit to his development and teach him and instruct him and, and then give up his life as a ransom for him, die on a cross, resurrect from the grave, have breakfast with him on the beach, and then let him become the first leader of the local church. And Peter steps out to preach his first sermon. Acts chapter two, verse 38. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we're trying to be way too cute in our explanations of the gospel. Folks, it is repent and surrender your life to Jesus Christ and to receive him as the savior of your life. For the promise is for you and for your children. And look at this. And for all who are far off. I, I'm so thankful that this gospel is for people who are far off. I'm just, I'm, I'm really thankful for that. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself and with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. You ever notice in your Bible how before a passage, there's a heading kind of gives like a, like a title to the passage. If I ever get to make a heading for a passage, I would call that the swoosh of heaven in which I think, I think Peter had a moment. But what most people don't see is his father in the stands losing his mind, nothing but net. And I so badly, I so badly want to be a church that uh, is proud of discipleship, a church that understands the value in discipleship and our own development, and a church that continues to catch people in the net of God's grace. I just want to see thousands come to Jesus Christ. Amen.